Welcome to the Ground Effect Podcast. My name is Brian Clough, and this is From the Ashes. From the Ashes is our series about mental health. Mental health when it comes to public safety and people in the medical field. On this episode, we talk to James Boomhauer. James is the founder of Fit for Duty and dedicates countless hours to promoting mental health resources and public safety. James is a 17-year veteran of EMS and is currently working as a critical care specialist paramedic in the Northeast. During our conversation, we talked about the stigma surrounding mental health and public safety and the different ways to get the help you need. Now listen in and get your gears turning. Let's start with who you are, a little bit of your history in EMS, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty of it all. That sounds great. Uh, My name is James Boomhauer. I'm a critical care transport specialist paramedic with Boston MedFlight. And I run a mental health and suicide awareness advocacy campaign called Fit for Duty. Perfect. So what got you into the advocacy for mental health? What is it that really brought you towards that, that made you feel like you needed to bring it out? Yeah, um, if we had six hours, right, we could <laughs> we could talk about the whole thing. Um, as, as you and I talked a little bit before you recorded, um, I had a, a pretty nasty call early in my HEMS and critical care career that was really like the straw that broke the camel's back, right? I certainly won't say it was like the epicenter. It wasn't this humongous traumatic event. It was a bad call for a very new, very easily stressed HEMS provider, right, in a brand new setting and a brand new uh, sea of challenges um, that kind of tipped the Jenga board, if you will, right? I pulled out that last block uh, and the relationship crumbled and the life crumbled and finances crumbled and all of these things that really weren't being held together by more than just, you know, some glue and some whiskey. Um, and what, what really did it, uh, the day that I was like, I am going to start talking about this in public. And as you know, that very easily morphs into, and I'm going to start to generate social media and we're going to like reach more people. Uh, My father was a paramedic and my mother was an EMT and a dispatcher. Uh, So amidst that bad call and kind of all of the stuff that fell beyond that, um, I had a loved one pass away. So I drove back home to say goodbye to my loved one before they passed away, which I uh, personally am incredibly thankful for, you know, the opportunity to, to give someone a kiss and tell them how much they mean to you before uh, they pass away. And I'm at the bar with, with my parents and, you know, we're just kind of talking about everything. And I took a deep breath and said, you know, I'm i uh, I'm going to a therapist because you know, work is crazy stressful. And then like it all comes out right at a hundred miles an hour. And my parents, God love them said, Oh my God, whatever you do, don't tell work that you're going to a therapist because they'll find you unfit for duty. They won't let you fly, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. It was literally, Brian, it was that second that I was like, no, though. Like, obviously there are some concerns on either side of the coin, of course, but, but reflexively, that's just not the truth. And if that's what my parents think, who are tremendous advocates for me, and they are, that's, that's not a backhanded compliment. My parents are my biggest supporters. What on earth is the perception around it in general and that was why we titled it Fit for Duty. And that is really what encouraged um, me to gather some resources and to enlist some help and to move forward with this whole program and platform. Awesome. I mean, that, that's an interesting point you bring up is I grew up in a EMS, public safety, medical, uh, medical family. 
father was a fire chief, mother was an EMT, um, sister's a nurse, you know, all that. And I never saw it in my parents, never saw any sort of mental health problems, no PTSD, nothing like that. Um, and did you ever think that growing up into that sort of family that that was ever going to be a problem? Um, I know, you know, what, being in the field for 17 years, like you have, um, we've heard the stigma, you know, you can't talk about it. You can't do this. You know, it's taboo to talk about, you know, I hate that term because it's not taboo to talk about. Right. Um, but did you ever see that in anybody else in your family growing up that, Hey, maybe there's something, you know, mom or dad would come home and, you know, just be off from their normal because of something that they saw. Did you ever see that? Yeah, no, because I was I was very young when uh, I, I I was very very young when my mother was still an EMT. When I was uh, my father stayed a paramedic for probably seven eight years longer than my mom. Um, so I was old enough to appreciate what he did and how cool it was and the uniform and everything else. Um, but I I'm sure if I spent some time and, and thought back on it, I could. But no, in the, in the moment for sure, it was like oh, dad's having a bad day or mom's really stressed or whatever. It would never never made that extra leap. Um, I started, as you and I talked about, I started my career really young. Um, so I always had parents that were super supportive. Um, I was in, I was involved in a terrible fatal accident uh, as a explorer for the ambulance corps, like the high school kid bopping around, um, helping provide patient care to fellow students of mine. And where I have to give all the credit in the world was to the agency I was with my parents and the counselor, they had, with the exception of my parents, this like predetermined, like, what do you do when a 16-year-old sees something terrible plan? And my dad was like super on par with it, right? Here's, here's this, here's that, here's the other thing. So uh, not only did I not see it in my father, but I was, was genuinely taken aback when the adult, right, comes to dad and remembers how caring and compassionate he was when I was a teenager. And it's like, you're a professional now. <laughs> you can't do that. You know, that right. was when you were a kid. And this is, and not that he ever said any of those things, but what I felt was like, well, that was how we handled you when you were a kid. And now that you're an adult and a grown up, we don't want you to lose this opportunity. So as you said, don't do something as taboo as announced that you're seeing a mental health specialist. Right. So that's another interesting point. I myself was also an explorer, more on the fire side. So we didn't do a lot. Um, when it comes to EMS. But when I was an explorer, there were a few incidents where people would die, you know, um, in surrounding communities, um, firefighters, police officers, stuff like that, they get injured. Um, you know, personally, I never really thought about it. You know, you knew it was a hazardous job, you knew that there was always a risk. Um, but never really, it never, never really thought about how it would affect me. Um, being so young, I mean, I started at 14 years old, um, going to, you know, 18. And then as soon as I turned 18, got my EMT, became firefighter, EMT, everything yeah, like that. Yep. Um, do you think that that really should be a bigger part of Explorer and cadet programs of, is talking about mental health and realizing that, Hey, at 14 years old, we are nowhere near developed or had the life experience to be able to handle right. this stuff. Right. You know, never thought about it before pretty much until now that that should have been a huge part of it. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually really fortunate as I as I kind of, you know, as you and I quickly found out, right, you have a network and you tell people what you're doing and you can like slide into like an EMT class, right? Like the first time I gave my talk was to right. like a, a EMT class and then I get expands from there. Um, but I, I gave my talk specifically to a program in Connecticut that had a, a tremendous volunteer and junior, you know, what, what you and I know is junior volunteer right. program. And that was the point was like, hey, 
we don't talk about this, right? Because we're adults, which again is making me nauseous to say, right? But but right. we've already processed this, and and maybe we have better coping mechanisms, and then we don't know how to articulate to someone that you know, hey, this, oh my God, time you've seen another human die, right? Or it's maybe the first time that you've seen tragedy or chaos or what have you, and how do we incorporate that? Um, so yeah, I think it, it should be a foundational portion of it. And I think if we attack this problem at the cadets and the juniors that are coming in, then we will naturally kind of create a tide where this is just talked about. You know, what I what I tell a lot of people when I talk about this is my goal is to make mental health the end title of 10 years ago, right? right? If I went to a conference and said, I give a great talk on end title, they'd be like, meh, okay. What do we need to know about end title? We know it already. Everybody uses it. You know, I hope that in 10 years I say, man, I give a bang up talk about mental health. And they say, yeah, we're good. Right. Everybody's got a counselor. We've covered that already. Right. Um, and I think uh, to your point, a very good way to articulate that or start that would be to starting with the juniors and with the newest. Yeah. Even just in, in EMT school and paramedic school, nursing school, um, you know, we had a probably five minute talk about mental health and it, it really had yeah. nothing to do. It really had nothing to do with anything. It was just, Hey, if you start feeling about it, feeling bad about something, go talk to somebody. If not suck it up, move on, go on the next call. We don't have time for that. And that, exactly. and, and that still happens. And that drives me nuts that, um, people for some reason still have that mentality with all the people who are dying, committing suicide, who are, you know, alcohol, whatever the reason is the fact that, the, the friends of the people who said, well, I wish I saw it. I wish they could talk to me are the same ones saying, don't talk to me because I don't have time for it because we got to get on the truck and do another call. Right. Right. Um, you know, I, I remember when I was in paramedic school, to your point, it was like a paragraph in index B, right. It was like, eat an apple, get some yeah. sleep and lift and, you know, lift with a straight back, right. <laughs> you can right. bend your knees. Um, and that was your mental health and wellness lecture. Um, it, I think we are making some strides. I think now it's like a page <laughs> instead of a paragraph. So we're getting there. But I think it's challenging to go to a paramedic academy instructor and say, hey, I know you're putting 10 pounds of stuff in a five-pound bag every day, but I need to take three days to ensure that these providers don't kill themselves. Right. Because some of these people too, I think recently I've had a lot of partners or people who have joined agencies I work for who this is a second career for them. They were engineers or you know, worked in um, public service or Disney or wherever, and they decided they wanted to go be an EMT. So they've got to offload something that they've never dealt with in their whole life. You know, previously, who knows what they're walking in there with? You know, as an 18-year-old, what's the worst thing I got to deal with? My girlfriend broke up with me in high school or, you know, stuff like that. But it's almost like I feel that people should be debriefed in school. You know, hey, here's what we need to talk about. Here's what we need um, to deal with before we even get in school, before we get you out on the road and deal with more. Like you say, you've already got a five pound bag with 10 pounds of crap in it. Let's at least empty it out a little bit. Like Dan says, empty out that mental trash can. You know, um, I've gone through so many books about, you know, EMT school, medic school, critical care, every class I've taken online. And, and this has nothing against any of these people who offer these classes, but how many of them actually talk about it in the class, you know, and how do we fix that? How do we go through and make people start talking about it? 
Right. And, you know, I've, I've seen instructors and I can attest to this in programs that I've been a part of, right. Where you get that shock value video, right. Like the, the mangled car wreck bodies flying or the terrible fire, you know, bodies burned. And, and the narrative is like, you better be ready to handle this. Well, no, <laughs> we didn't, we didn't expect them to run it. We didn't code their first day of EMT school, right. We build up to that. So I think that we should take those videos and say, here's real life. This is, uh, yes, EMS is full of dialysis runs and nonsense calls. And we, mm-hmm. we both have a storied enough career. We've done a hundred of those for every, you know, awesome highway intubation we've done. Right. And it, you have to balance the stress of all the nonsense with the chaos and stress of the severe and the emergency, right? I know uh, everybody can see the air quotes as I do yeah. that. Um, so now here are the tools to handle that instead of just forcing someone to be tough enough, which inherently forces silence, right? And stigma and shame and all the shit that we know kills right. our providers and say, we didn't expect you to know how to handle this. This is a reality of your job. Now here is how we're going to start to walk through how you can handle it. Right. And I mean, I'm a big fan of shock factor. I really am. You know, here's the worst of the worst and here's what you're going to see. You know, don't, don't cherry pick these small little things that, um, you know, you're, you're going to see a bad call. You're going to see a pediatric cardiac arrest. You know, are they shitty calls? Absolutely. They suck. But that's probably not the worst call you're going to see in your career. It's going to be that mangled car wreck with the person that you've been working on for an hour trying to get them out of the vehicle and you've done so much for this person and you think they're going to survive because of everything you've done and then they end up dying. I think a lot of those calls bother people more like, like the call that you went on um, that you talk about in your video. And I'll put that so people can watch it. You did so much for this guy. And regardless of what else you went through prior to that, you did all this for this person and for not essentially, you know, and, and how do you handle that? How do you handle that sort of thing? And how do you teach somebody to handle that? You know, working in a pediatric environment now primarily is great. I love it. I have every resource I need to, help these kids. We've got ECMO, we've got, you know, every doctor, every physician, every specialist, everything on transport. All I have to do is pick up the phone and say, this is what we need. How do we do it? If we don't know how to do it, whatever. But also working for a county-based EMS service, I take that same call and now put an EMS where I have no resources. That bothers me more than the call at the pediatric facility because now I can't do anything. I know what I can do. I know what needs to be done, but I can't do it. So how do we how do we get people to handle that sort of thing? How do you explain to somebody? It's not going to be what you see. It's what you do, what you can't do. You know, it, how do we explain that to somebody? Yeah, but it's a challenge for sure. And I think if you look on the mental health side of the coin and psychological first aid and a lot of the, the foundational uh, education that peer supporters will take, there, there's a whole litany of them out there. I can only speak to the ones that I've taken. Uh, we talk a lot about this idea of the worldview, Right you, me, and every other responder in the world gets traumatized when our worldview is changed. And to stay in the pediatric realm, right? Pediatric abuse, right? Mm -hmm. My worldview says people don't hit, beat, burn children, right? And then to your point, you can add that layer of, but I was able to do everything I could for that child in the moment I was there. I think it's helpful to remember too that, especially to circle back to our newest people, right? Our newest person who may have not ever seen a leg on backwards, right? Or barely hanging by a tendon. That literally is a change in their worldview. So when you're like, oh my God, the new girl's crying over a broken leg. Are you kidding me? Right? 
if we remember like, hey, yesterday, <laughs> this individual didn't know that limbs could be on backwards. Right. Or, you know, like you said, it's infuriating. I, I, a similar experience for me was I was a paramedic at a BLS quick response service. I ran my college's uh, EMT quick response. So no transport, BLS only. And I'd be like, all right, man, we're going to get you fixed up. I just got to grab my Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I just worked there today. It was the same thing. It was like, oh, I know exactly what needs to be done. Right. And then that other layer, another group of paramedics would show up who I was very fortunate were phenomenal. But you could imagine the nails on the chalkboard when I'm like, you're not, you're not doing what I would do. No, no, no. That's the wrong medicine. What are you, what are you doing? Right. Just, right. just give me the, let me do it. Right. Handing over to great providers who just either don't have the knowledge or the resource because they've never been experienced, especially the critical care is mm -hmm. just as frustrating. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I, I think to, to answer your question, if we, if we attack the worldview first and, and understanding that when your worldview gets changed, here is a stepwise approach to start to heal or to start to wrap your head around that. Add to that, like you said, the, most of us are, are pretty okay if we've done all that we can. Here's how to mitigate that if you can't. And I, I think one of the, I, I know you're, you're asking more medical metaphorical questions but either way uh, one of the one of the easiest things to do and one of the most standard kind of peer support training things to do is to to delineate what's operational and what's emotional so when you're upset because a child died we can talk about the emotions behind that but as the person talking you through the emotional side of the coin i'm not the person to talk to you about the fact that you put in a three five instead of a four oh Mm -hmm. Right. So you need you need another clinician, preferably a peer, right? Preferably another person right. with that same training to then talk you through the operational side of the coin to not kind of meld the two. And, and EMS struggles with that. And, and so does everyone in the peer support realm that has that same background, right? Physicians of physicians, hems to hems, critical care to critical care. It's hard for me to not talk to you about a bad PD call and let you kind of tiptoe into the operational and then back in the emotional and back and forth. Cause to your point, often they're very closely tied together, right. right? You do everything you can. That's great. But what happens when you do everything you can, but you miss the tube right. or you biff the IO, right? And then it's, it's kind of this marriage of both. And, and one of the cleanest things to do is to kind of separate those two work through the emotional side of the coin and then better process the operational side of the coin. So do you think that, you know, you have this bad call, say it's just, one of the worst calls you've seen, you deal with it kind of emotionally. Three weeks later, you get a call from your medical director. You're going to come and we're going to talk about it. And it's, you know, it's great medical director, somebody who, you know, has experience, has knowledge. Um, but to, it's somebody, you know, that it's a operational meeting about protocols or something you can't do. Um, do you think that that really affects people? You know, hey, I've dealt with it emotionally and now I have to bring it up again and go over everything that I did wrong. You know, obviously the, the approach of the medical director or the operations person or QA affects it, but say, say it's a good conversation. You know, the person's there to help you. Does that affect coming up three weeks later, four weeks later, having to go over it again and again and again, and potentially getting negative feedback to it, do you think? I think for sure. And I think on the realm of the person overseeing your well-being, right, which should primarily be you, but in a perfect mm -hmm. world, there are some other people kind of extrinsically watching that as well. Uh, reflexively, as a peer supporter, my head's going we're going to talk after that meeting, mm -hmm. right? We're going to, we're going to grab a cup of coffee or do whatever. And we're going to make sure that like you have a safety net after that meeting, because like you said, it could go perfectly. Just wanted to say, great job. I'm so sorry. The outcome sucked, but I haven't seen PD medicine that good in a long time, mm -hmm. right? Which is 
I think for me personally, a lot easier to handle than, Hey, we ran a chess film and the needle you put in was way off. Right. Or, or, you know, that tube was actually wicked narrow and that's where you were getting all these lines. I mean, we can go through a million scenarios. Right. right. I think, I think that is definitely a challenge and that really depends on uh, the individual and how well they handled the initial front. Cause I think there are a lot of people that can, box away the emotional side of it and handle the operational side of it. But I think it's super important that the same people that helped them through either in the very beginning should be in the mix towards the end. Right. After that. I agree. Yeah. It's, I think it's a, it's that fine line. And if you've had a bad experience with a supervisor before, and now that supervisor is responsible for your QA meeting, you know, like I know most places, every cardiac arrest gets QA'd, every intubation gets QA'd, you know, stuff like that if you've had a bad experience with that before, how do you, you know, you, you can't really have a, you can have a good conversation with them, but that changes things too. But, um, so for you personally, what is the, did anything, did you ever realize anything bothered you before your life kind of changed? You know, did you have those bad calls and just kind of brush them off or did they bother you? You thought you got over them and that was that. You know, did you, were, oh, nothing bothered me or were you affected by things you talked them through and you thought that they were gone? Uh, that's a, that's a great question. And I have to say in all of the podcasts I've done and talks I've done, no one's ever actually asked me that question. Um, I think a mix of both. Um, I've always had a good team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a pretty solid empath and I, I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of close friends in each EMS or critical care gig that I've done. Um, so you, you kind of, I was kind of getting it before I knew what it was, right? I'd say the calls that bothered me were really unjust, right? We talk about first responders having a pretty North facing moral compass, right? right. And, and an example of that would be, you know, a three car crash and the drunk that caused it died. Nobody shedding a tear, right? And I, I'm not saying that's right, but right. like, we're like, well, you did the bad thing. You had the harm. Maybe you shouldn't have done the bad thing versus what normally happens, right? That person stumbles out with a broken ankle, but killed three kids. Mm -hmm. And we're all like, what the actual blah, right? We have this tremendously visceral reaction because our moral compass has been shifted and that is unjust in our eyes. Uh, So those those calls would always get under my skin and the really emotional familial ones would get under my skin um, to to try to be as, you know, HIPAA compliant as possible. I remember a a cardiac arrest where uh, the individual was dead dead, dead, dead. Don't start CPR, get your lead of asystole, console the family and make your way. And uh, the family member was like, you know, I feel terrible because I woke up maybe five, six hours ago and felt that their feet were really cold. So I put a blanket over them. And I was like, oh, oh my God, that's heartbreaking. You know, a a couple that had been married for decades. Right. And that's, that's kind of how it ends. Uh, So um, I think I would, like I said, I worked through those without knowing I worked through them. I certainly mm-hmm. don't think it was the healthiest approach. Um, Gallo's humor is, uh, ironically enough, something that's actually been studied in the psychological realm to be very helpful for us as first responders mm-hmm. in the right setting. You know, this is the, the benefit of the firehouse coffee table or right. the hangar where management can't come in, right? With all love to my managers. I don't mean that was saying, oh, right? Absolutely. But like, absolutely. Just the line is in there talking horrible jokes as a as a mode to process some of the stuff that they've seen right. um but the deep the deep deep i'm not okay 
I think was hidden for a while, right? I think, I think people around me knew it better than I did for a long time. You know, the, the 15th time I bring up that bad car wreck and how pissed off I am and mm-hmm. this, that and the other, I don't think it ever clicked that it was like, maybe, maybe instead of being really mad, you're just projecting that you're actually not okay and that you need to kind of look at other avenues and resources to go about. Right. So what would you, I mean, I'm sure you see it and hear it all the time. Somebody who says, you know, they've been in this field for 10, 15 years, nothing's ever bothered me, no cause ever bothered me. What would you say to that person? You know, those people can exist, right? And as much as I say it's okay to not be okay, I also don't want people that have a healthy home life, that have stable financial life, right? And I use those as metrics because like it right. knocks out kind of the other cumulative stuff, but like there are people that can be genuinely unaffected by this stuff or affected, process appropriately and move on with their day. Right. Um, you're okay. Tell me your secret is, is a the first thing, but B like, I'm not dragging you to therapy. Right. Right. I'm going to say if that ever changes, you have my cell right. and, and kind of keep half an eye on them if things get too strong. Um, but for those people that, that say they're okay and genuinely mean it and are okay, more power to you for the dude who's, and I'm just calling myself out here, right? His third bottle of whiskey in who just mm-hmm. broke up with his girlfriend. Like, There's nothing wrong with me. I'm stone cold. All right, right man. Well, let's talk about it. Right. right. Um, I've, I've always found a great benefit in being quiet, but available. Right. right? Uh, we've heard horror stories of therapists, you know, dragging people to therapy and that ending poorly with the, with the exception of somebody who is in imminent harm to themselves or others. Right. I don't mean to say that it's never okay. The person that's like, I'm going to sit here and we're going to talk about it. Goodwill hunting style. Right. right? That's, that's wrong. I'm the guy that's going to be like, do you mind if I check back in in three days? Right. I'm just going to hit you up. If that's right with you, you know, always ask permission. Right. But Hey, is it cool if I check back in a couple of days? Right. Have you gotten some sleep? Have you, are you hydrated? Have you eaten? Right. Get all those core kind of foundational things out of the way. Mm-hmm. And, and I find that as you continually check in on people, they either prove that their mode of processing works and they're great and they thank you for your time, or they tell you to GFY, or they actually reach out to you. Right. And, and as right. long as I'm available when needed, then I think that's, that's an okay thing. Right. Good. Yeah. It, it's hard for me personally, you know, it's hard to believe that somebody can go this, go that long 10, you know, after five years, especially in, you know, private EMS or some of these smaller services that aren't that busy. Okay. Yeah. You can go five years without seeing something bad, but you know, somebody who's been 15 years in a busy system that, you know, does everything. Yeah. It's hard for me to believe that people don't get affected by stuff, but you're, you're absolutely right. People can cope differently. You know, we're not all the same just because I saw something one way, um, doesn't mean somebody else did, you know, and similar to you, I believe in the peer to peer support is almost more important than, um, more important than therapy, you know, like going to a therapist and things like that, because the peer to peer is really where you learn about yourself and what's, and what really does affect you because you're having gone through therapy myself. The first time I walked into that person's office, especially in EMS, we, we don't trust anybody. I don't care who you are. Right. I don't care who comes right. up to you. We don't trust anybody until we get to know them, you know, and probably the first three or four sessions, you know, I told them a little bit, but there were things I was holding back, but I've worked with this person, you know, for two years, partner for two years. And a call bothers me that day. You can bet we're probably going to talk about it, you know, yeah. or, you know, you and I, 
I call you, Hey, look, I had this call. It doesn't bother me, but can I just talk to you about it? You know, something like that. Um, I peer to peer for me is so much more important as a starting point because once you start talking about it, then you can talk to somebody else about it easier because you know, what's really bothering you. Yeah. And the only asterisk I'm going to put on that is peer to peer is not CISD. True. Very that, true. This whole, and, and, and you know, nomenclature is huge in the mental health realm. And uh, my right. godfather is a physician uh, in upstate New York and him and I just had this discussion the other day right of well what i do versus what he's seen works well um you know peer-to-peer meaning someone you sit down with you talk it out with who preferably right I, i'm not saying that everyone needs to have all these credentials after their name but somebody mm-hmm. who preferably has some some training more in, in the very pre-hospital sense of like here's a pretty generalized algorithm that i go through right. and most importantly i know when i'm in over my head and i know how to get you for the resources Right. Um, but but the I don't ever want someone to confuse peer to peer with we're all going to sit in a circle and share our trauma. Absolutely. Because that can be, as you know, I can see nobody can see Brian's head nod vigorously yeah. up and down right as I say this. But um, it, when we're when we're fresh and emotional, like you said, maybe they didn't see the call the same way I did. But now I'm going to tell them how I saw that same call, and you're just taking Play-Doh when you're just twisting it and bending it. And, oh my God, that kid was dead. I didn't even know that kid was dead. I was working on the parent, you know, on the other right. side of the car. Uh, that has been found to be very harmful. Right. And I just like to take a minute and explain, you know, the difference between peer-to-peer, either one-on-one or a group setting where the group peer shares some information. Here's what to expect for the next week, right? And here's how you can find me if you need me, but not to sit in a circle and everybody tell me why you're sad and how do you feel. Right. Uh, Because that that has been found to be very harmful rather than helpful. Right. And and it's funny you mentioned that. Um, One of the programs down here, recently has gone away from that whole sit in a circle and let's talk about it and let's debrief in this, because like you said, one person sees something and they thought, you know, I, I saw what you did and I didn't like what you did because it was completely wrong, completely different than what I would have done. And now you're beating yourself up over it because we had this conversation and I thought it was a safe place, but now you're taking it out because you don't feel like you can talk, you know? Um, so it, it is kind of a, it, it, it can be dangerous, and I completely agree with that. You know, you can't use that as a, me and my partner talked about it, so I'm fine. Or me and this person talked about it, so I'm fine. You're absolutely right about that. Um, but as a starting point to realize in yourself that, hey, look, I had this, you know, had this, and I just just need to talk to somebody about something, you know, not to save in the call, but just to just to start talking. You know, I, that yeah. that's more what I find beneficial for people is, you know, having somebody you can go back to and just, have a conversation, even as nothing to do with the call itself, you know, maybe just, Hey, we did good. We did everything we could. And you guys can agree to that, you know, but yes, absolutely. The, the true peer to peer CISD um, is definitely a, a much different thing than you and your partner talking. So yes, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. And I, and, and just to reiterate, right. I'm a huge advocate of the peer to peer and you and your partner talking and a huge non-supporter of the CISD, right? CISM is a little better. I know it gets very like, you're right. I mean, my, one of my very, very good friends that I met at MedFlight and I'm close with at MedFlight, um, him and I don't spend a ton of time talking about medicine, right? You'll just slouch over the bar. Mm -hmm. Fuck. And then 20 minutes later, you're talking about a date you went on. Right. And like it, the social structure behind that, which is exactly, you know, the, the bigger point that you're getting to, right? The social structure behind that and the, the brotherhood, the fraternity of our team, of EMS, of fire, of police, um, is a really, really good starting point. Right. right? I and guess that's that a better, can, better way to put it is the social, have a social aspect to it. 
Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Which is exactly what you were saying. I'm just right. picky with the nomenclature. Sometimes. Ab- yeah. No, absolutely. It's it's important because you're right. Because you you give people the wrong information about you know you and your partner talking about it. Oh, that solves all the problems. No, it doesn't. Because like you say, it can cause more problems for them. So you're absolutely right. The nomenclature and the way you say things, and especially for people who are trying to end that stigma, it's important. Well, I talked to my partner about it and it didn't help. That's not what I meant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Then here's the next step you go to. Right. right? And that's the point. But I, I, I got to say on the stigma side of the coin, I truly feel that if we had a, a career full of people that said, listen, you can talk to your partner or maybe not the dude who sit next to in the helicopter. Cause we all know that sometimes that's your best friend and sometimes it's not. Right. But like, if we all had a room where you just, you could just talk to somebody about it, somebody in him, somebody in your team, somebody in 911, I really think that that alone would help so, 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 so much. Yeah. You know, when I, when I started this process, I was razzed hard for being mm-hmm. the key to therapy. Right. Well, nobody give Boomer a hard time today. Right. He's fragile. He just came back from therapy. But the same people that would corner me at the base and be like, does that help? You know, do you feel like you're getting anything out of it? Like genuine, real questions about therapy. So I think I think there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good middle ground we can come to on just about every single aspect. And the peer to peer is a tremendous part of that for sure. Right. I I think most importantly is if something is bothering you, even if it's not something that necessarily you think should bother you, you know, well, why does this bother me? Talk to somebody about it, you know, talk about it and don't hold it in. Don't think, well, she, he's not bothered by it. She's not bothered by it. So I'm not going to be bothered by it. Whatever. Like you say, you saw something different. Maybe you're the one who couldn't get the tube. Maybe, you know, whatever it is, just talk about it. Open up, you know, don't, you don't necessarily have to go and, you know, spread your entire life story out. But if you need to talk to somebody, find somebody to, you know, just talk about it. Don't hold it in because those are the small little things. Personally, I realize add up to the big things. And then once all the big things come up, that's when it explodes. Exactly. Exactly right. If you, you know, if you decide to go to therapy, if therapy is your choice, um, many of us will sit down and a good therapist, and I can tell you this from talking to and interviewing a lot of therapists, will attack what's bothering you in that moment, right? right. And, and as long as you're safe and as long as you're not harmed to anybody else, I always put that disclosure in there, right? But right. They'll, they'll attack what's bothering you right now. A perfect example would be for me, you know, I know that kid died and it was terribly sad, but I did everything I could. I'm really upset about this fight I had with my partner. Mm-hmm. Some therapists would be like, whoa, 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 back to the dead baby for a second, right? right. The therapist would say, okay, for whatever reason, Dave, that that's not what's bothering him, so we're going to attack here. Right. And then he, well, you sit through another couple of sessions, and I can't tell you many times I heard, why didn't you come here two years ago? Right. Right? It sounds like <laughs> this started six years ago, so why weren't you here two years ago so we could talk about this? And that's really the big point that I try to make is, you know, finding a good therapist while like dating. Right. And if you, yeah. if you take time to, you know, actually look for a therapist and find somebody that melds with you, you're in a much better spot than the EAP mandated. Here's your four sessions with somebody who lives two miles away from you. Right. Nobody saw Brian's huge eye roll when I said that. Right. Because <laughs> we all have a terrible experience with some random person that we met because our zip codes matched. Right. And they know nothing about first responders. And we come to them at what is presumably a hyper acute side of the coin, right? Where we're all stressed and all freaking out. And then we have a bad outcome. Of course we are. We're putting, you know, a powder keg in a, in a room full of people that have no idea how to handle explosives. Right. So, Absolutely. 
you're, you, I, I got a little tangential there. I apologize, but you're, you're totally you're right on the side. You, you start on the peer, on the peer to peer, and you know that there are options. You continue to come up. I will never say everybody needs to see a therapist. Never. Cause I think it's wrong. Right. But I will always say, if you need a therapist, call me, I will help. I will personally help you find one right. because they're an invaluable resource there to keep our pre-hospital metaphor alive. They're our medical control. How many calls do we do a day where we don't need medical control? It's our training, our background can help one another. But you got to know who your medical director is, right? You got to know who your medical control is if you need it. So you got to have some combination of both. Right. Now, you you had a bad experience with a therapist. So how did that, you know, obviously that I had a similar episode. Um, Thankfully, it wasn't a horrible experience. I just, I was already at the point where I knew I needed help. This person wasn't doing anything for me, so I went and got another one. You know, talk to me about your experience with a bad. Was it just same thing where it didn't work, or was it? Did it actually cause "quote unquote" harm to you? Do you think? So my, I mean, for for starters, I had a couple of therapists I was having clicked with, right? Not good, not bad, just didn't click and moved on with my day. Absolutely, the bad therapist um, was was a really terrible combination. Um, in a department that I worked in, uh, one of my regular partners committed suicide. Mm-hmm. As a response to that, the agency that I worked for did a lot of things right. They closed the agency for a handful of days, right? They had neighboring towns come answer all of our 911 calls, so none of us had to be burdened with work. And we'd very recently interviewed someone who'd advertised themselves as a uh, paramedics therapist, right? They, they were a clinician out uh, somewhere internationally, um, like an embedded counselor in that program. And they were to the States and they were literally like going agency to agency. Not only do I work with the AP, but I, I am this, I am that. Uh, so our agency's answer was if you were very close to this woman, then you had to go to X number of therapy appointments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went there with, like you and I talked about, four years of baggage accumulated by the death of someone I cared deeply about that I felt responsible for. Not rationally, but I'm a, I'm a paramedic, man. I, I couldn't save like my paramedic partner's life, not physically, but like emotionally and mentally and big picture. You didn't recognize it. You didn't intervene. Exactly. You didn't before. All of it. You are absolutely right. Right. And I walked into this mandated meeting. And this woman was like, yeah, 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 yeah. We don't, we're not here to talk about any of that other stuff, right? Because this person was also a confidant for all that other stuff. So it all kind of boiled up and, and this woman all but told me to shut up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, cool. Okay. So for the next three sessions I have to attend to keep my job, you and I are going to sit in silence for 45 minutes. And what it did was it told me that it told me two things. Now I was much younger, but I believed that I was too broken for a therapist, right? Like, well, they can't help me because I didn't know that there were good ones and bad ones, right? They're just, they are. And, um, that therapist suck, right? So I'm, I'm too broken and they don't work. And that kept me out of therapy for north of three to four years. And I'll admit that I wasn't like actively looking and trying to like jump over this huge barrier. But if the thought ever came into my head, I was like, well, I'll tell you what we're not going to do. We're right. not going to do that again. Um, so, so yeah, I absolutely did have, did have a negative outcome for sure. So how do you talk somebody out of that? Some, you see somebody who needs help. You know, you see somebody, this person needs a therapist. You know, whether they come to you and you basically tell them, look, there's only so much I can do for you. This is outside of my, 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 my realm. You know, this is, this is above me. This is, you need to talk to somebody. 
how do you convince somebody who's had an experience like that, maybe multiple experiences? Because there are people who've had four or five experiences. Sure. How do you talk to somebody about, look, this is what you need. This is why when they're just, that's not what they want to do. How, how would you relay that? Yeah. Um, I think for starters, I, and I feel like I'm being so nitpicky today, man. I'm so sorry, but you're I, I start by saying, you know, I don't, I don't think it has to happen. This is what I suggest, right? right. In my opinion, Absolutely. this is what I do. Um, especially locally, uh, I and a number of other peers on our peer team and, and some um, clinicians that have reached out to us are starting to formulate a network of maybe I haven't been, but Brian thinks she's the cat's meow, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes just another medic, EMT, firefighter, police saying, hey, I trust this person. Right. We'll at least get you through the door and give you a little bit of forgiveness, right? Um, I, I think that it's important to remember that this person is not going to fix you in a day, mm -hmm. right? You, you have to go into any therapy session saying you and I are going to work together to solve a problem. Right. If you sit there and say, fix me, it's not going to work, right? No. That dude with the stop, you know, with the stopwatch swinging in front of your face doesn't exist, right? He probably does, but it's not anybody that I'd recommend to my colleagues. Right. Um, and, and you have to understand that it's like dating. I know it's a silly metaphor to use, but it really is. Because if I went, if I said, Brian, I went on a first date, man, it sucked. She was half an hour late. You know, she chewed her mouth open. She was mean to me the whole time. You'd be like, don't go on a second date. You wouldn't right. say the female race is terrible avoid the female race, right? You'd say you should go on another date with that other girl you met. Right. I think we often burden therapists as a profession because we wait so long and then we say, oh my God, I'm broken, fix me. And they said, well, start by telling me your name, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's your name? And we don't get this instantaneous result that we're used to in critical care, right? You and I can do some bang up medicine in about 25 minutes, right? right? And get somebody from not dead or from dead to not dead real quick. And right. therapy doesn't work like that. So I try really hard to, to keep them safe and to change their mindset, reminding them that, again, the last time I'm going to say it, with the exception of somebody who's in a minute threat to themselves or someone else, you have choice. It's okay for you to say, we're not driving. Who can you recommend? I think so many people forget that you can go to a therapist and say, this isn't working. Is there anyone else that you'd recommend? Right. It, it sounds so fun. You wouldn't do that on a date, right? You wouldn't right. be like, this isn't working. Give me friends. Give us this. Yeah, exactly right. Um, but you can with a therapist because their job, any, any therapist will tell you that their job is to be an unconditional supporter of you. Mm -hmm. And if that means losing a copay because you're going to get healthy and get help with someone else, well, there are bad ones right? That are way more focused on the money that they're going to get. Right. The vast majority of therapists, especially the one that advertise themselves to us in this state, um, are tremendously helpful in that front. Right. So you just have to kind of remember where you sit in the patient therapist cycle. Yeah. Good. I, I like that a lot. And, you know, I'm, I'm as much as I miss the snow and the shoveling and the cold and everything like that, and want to get away from the Florida heat. One thing I do miss about up there um, is resources like on-site, you know, resources mm -hmm. that you, you've got all these up there. I mean, you guys do it right. You know, when it comes to your local resources, you've got so many people, so many teams that, you know, this team isn't the right team for this. They were involved, whatever it's done. It's done very well. You know, is it perfect? Probably not because we still don't know everything about it, you know, but it, it compared to what we have in the rest of the country and a lot of parts of the country, um, it's lacking. And I wish that that could be spread everywhere by tomorrow, 
You know, I wish that you yeah. could basically go and yep. say, snap your fingers and wish that was it. Have resources like Onsite Academy, like, um, you know, the, the local teams they have that'll go anywhere, all that sort of stuff. It's so important to do it right, to do it and have that ability to bring it full circle. You know, I see so many teams and so many people are like, well, we're going to go send you to this class so that way you can deal with our people. It's like that, but that's not the point of this because if I can't do anything, what do I do next? Well, well, we're going to send you to this class so that way you can, you can help them. Right. You don't understand what I'm saying is this class does not qualify me to be a social worker, to be a licensed clinician, to be something like that. Where can I send this person? You know, this person needs inpatient help. Where do I send them? Well, you shouldn't have to worry about that because we're going to send you to this class. And say, <laughs> right. Right. It, 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 it's so yeah. frustrating, you know, and I know that these resources are available around the country that are available up there, but getting somebody from Florida to Massachusetts or, you know, New York or wherever is not easy, you know, right. especially somebody in crisis, you know, this person needs, needs mental help now and we're just going to Baker Act them or section 12 them but that's not the type of help they need. They don't need a three day stay to solve their problems. They need help from the right people, you know, and I just, I really wish that we had those resources everywhere um, because, you know, having personal experience with them, having multiple people who've, you know, had stays, who've seen the benefit of going to a farm and taking care of animals for three days, you know, that makes a huge deal. Um, when you find the right person to help you out, when you find the person with the right mentality who knows enough about you and what you do, but they're not going to judge you. They're not going to go through and say, we're here to fix you. Because I said the same thing when I talked to Daniel Mills, you know, is there a cure for PTSD? Not necessarily, but it doesn't define me. And we have to teach people that, look, you can get past, past this problem. You can get past this quote unquote disease it may still come back and it's still going to affect you possibly for the rest of your life, but here's how you live with it. You know, like somebody who lost an arm, you know, I'm going to cut your arm off. Are you going to die from it? No, you're fine. You're discharged from the hospital, but you have to learn to live your life and not be, you know, not every day go reach something with your left arm. That's not there anymore. You can't use it as a crutch. You can't use it as this. You have to learn how to get by it and resources, you know, what you have to offer, what, Daniel has to offer what all these people have to offer um, are just great. And I wish they were more places. I wish they were easier to access, you know, phone call away is awesome, you know, but it's just, we need so much more, you know, and all those resources will, will put plenty there for people. Um, but what is, what's the best piece of advice you can give to somebody who, you know, just feels like there's nobody there for them. Like they, they know these resources are there, but they can't get there. They know that, um, you know, you're just a phone call away, but they feel bad. They don't want to call you. What, what's the best piece of advice you can give to that person for themselves? You know, I've been doing the, the social media thing for a little while now, and I'll put a big eloquent post up and it'll be, you know, brilliantly worded and three people will edit it. And it's got a great picture and they'll get 50 likes. Right. Right. And I put up a meme or, or a, a picture not too long ago that said, I'd rather talk to you for hours than spend 10 minutes talking at your eulogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it got like 200 likes. Right. And I think that that's the, the biggest thing you have to remember in hopelessness is it's okay to not be okay. 
Mm-hmm. It's normal to be affected by this. Your hopelessness and, and what you may be thinking of like catastrophic ends to that means is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And I know you said it, there are so many of us. Shoot us a text, call. There are national hotlines, right? All stuff that we can put in the show notes, right? On the critical care side, there's a 1-800 number um, from Every Coast Helicopter Operators, right, that I'm part of. Mm-hmm. It's literally a 24-7 on-call peer support team. We, they, they exist. You matter. And when you're in that absolute, it doesn't matter, I can't do anything. First, I tell you to hydrate, right? Grab a bottle of water, sleep if you can, avoid the alcohol, at least in crisis, have a good meal, and then think about all of it again. And know that there are so many of us, and you're worth it. I know, I know it's all the same stuff that people have said before, but it's, it's because it's true. Like, right. Take a deep, slow breath, pick up the phone, and make a call. The more we can say it and the more that people can hear it, maybe they'll they'll realize that it, it is the truth that there the stigma around this whole conversation around PTSD around mental health is is self-created. Yeah. You know, yep. we it's a boogeyman. Yeah, we we made it ourselves. There is no stigma. It's it's not there. But we talk about it being a stigma, so it, it, here it is. You know, and, right. and and that drives me nuts. You know, we we go through um and try to have these conversations with certain people you know, recently I had a conversation with people about these, the new laws that are coming up, the red flag laws, well, they're going to take my guns. They're going to, if you love your guns more than you love your family, you got a problem. That that means that you, there's something there that you're not wanting to deal with because you're afraid of dealing with it. And you're using that as an excuse. Yeah. We love our guns. We're in EMS. We're in public safety. We love going out and killing things, even though we love saving things. It's it, but if you love your guns more than you love your family, more than you love yourself, I guarantee you when you're, when your family's putting you down on the ground, they're not going to go home and put that, that cold rifle in bed next to your wife and cuddle that and talk to it and be there. And that's, that gun is not going to pay your bills. That gun is not going to take care of your kids. It's not going to send them to college. It's not going to raise them right. You know, stop making excuses for these things. And I, I, I'm a kind of a tough love fan within reason, you know, I can't go up to somebody yeah. and say, you're fucked up, go get help. You know, I mean, it might work for somebody. Yeah. <laughs> right. But with a little bit of tact, yeah. But it's like when you tell somebody that and word it that way, sometimes I realize, you know, well, maybe you're right. Maybe yeah. if I, if I'm thinking that I need my guns can't be taken away cause I might need them. Well, maybe you should have your guns taken away for those three days while you're thinking about sitting on the side of your bed, holding it within your mouth, you know, it's like that could save you. And that can make you realize when you go to look for that gun, that's not there right now. That's why it's gone. That's why this is here. And are, are they right? No, I'm not trying to get political, but don't use it as an excuse. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the kind of bow that I'll put on uh, my end of the discussion is uh, reframing is so important. Like little ways, like we talk like little ways to change how you say things, little ways to change how you think things. We talk about PTSD and how hard a lot of us are working and change it to PTSI, right? Post-traumatic stress injury. Right. Uh, I herniated a disc in my back when I was a 23-year-old fire medic, right? 
nobody was like, oh, it's bullshit. You know, you just got to walk better. You know, I know you right. can't move that leg right now. Right. right. I got the support I needed. I had the, I, in my case, I needed medical intervention. Right. Mm-hmm. And on I went. If we think about mental health no differently than we think about medical, tangible health that we can see. Right? If Brian was like, dude, I cut my arm, nobody's going to be like, tourniquets are for the week, right? We're going like, to slap two of those bad boys on and go to a hospital. Right. If this was medicine, right? If we knew that Levafed was killing one first responder every four days in America, we'd have it off the shelves in a minute. We just have to change our thought process. I would much rather be with a 20-year vet who got help and can be helpful to his team than a five-year flame-out who either left the profession altogether or did something much worse. We just got to fight harder for each other, that's all. And these discussions and having them at the table, you know, at the firehouse or having them in the hangar matter. Because when you talk about it, you free up the space for other people to talk about it. And I think these conversations, honestly, once it gets started, they're easy to have. It's, you know, me and I, me and you have never met, you know, we've talked a little bit and the fact that we can go on for an hour, two hours, three hours and actually have a conversation about this, about, you know, what resources are out there, what to do. Why is it so hard that, you know, we can't sit there with people we know and have this conversation, you know, yeah, it's the stigma of, I don't want them to know, even though they're going through the exact same thing, probably, but I'm not going to talk about it. You know, it, they really are easy to have. They might not be fun to have. You know, do I enjoy sitting here and talking about this? No, I'd much rather sit here and talk about, you know, what's the newest and best thing with, you know, intubation or, you know, the CMAC versus the glide scope, you know, stuff like that. But it, it's an easy conversation to have. It's a necessary conversation to have. And if you don't have it, that's it. It can it can claim lives. You know, we Absolutely. lose some amazing people in this field because they never talk about it, whether it's to death, whether it's to McDonald's, whether it's to whatever, you know, they just, the, some of the best clinicians in the world leave this field because of something that they just couldn't get over because of build up, build up, build up, or yeah. whatever the reason, you know, and, and it's sad. It really is. You know, I, um, I always talk about how coming, coming from a variety EMS, right. I, before Brian and I talked, he asked for like my ultra quick CV, right. I've done just about every type of EMS in any embedded network you can. And if I walk into MedFlight tomorrow and say, I'm getting a divorce, could somebody help me move? There'd be 10 pickup trucks in my driveway. Mm-hmm. And if I said, dude, like, hi, listen, I went to the casino and I like gambled away my paycheck. Can I borrow a thousand dollars? I can all but promise you I could find a thousand dollars, right? Someone or a couple people would throw some money my way. Right. And that's especially true in the firehouse and in 911 and everywhere else. Right. It, I promise you with time and with patience, it'll be just as true on the mental side of the coin. My dream is Brian walks up to me and says, man, it's been rough. It's been real, real rough. I've done all the things you told me to do and I'm still not feeling awesome. Do you have that list of providers? Yeah, man, right here. Mm-hmm. Who do you want me to call? Whose number do you want? Right. Nobody would second guess it if I was getting a divorce. Nobody would second guess if I needed some cash. Right. We're all very willing to help one another. I know there's a stigma, but it's a stigma that we can break. Absolutely. Right. And, Ten years then, ago, there was a stigma about using VL. Right. right. Oh, your video laryngoscope. Now, if somebody's like, well, I don't use the video laryngoscope, we'll be like, go back to your cave. Get out of here. What are you right. talking about? Right. And we're going to get there. I 100% believe we're going to get there. I do too. And I think that, the unfortunate thing is it's not going to be quick enough for some people 
but I, I completely agree. We'll get there. I think that these conversations, um, you know, as much as I hate social media, it is an easy way to get out what needs to be, what, what just needs to be mass produced. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I hate it because it's annoying and it causes more problems than anything else, but I love it because, you know, you and I can go on, I can talk to you. I can talk to this person, that person that, you know, multiple people. And now your people hear me, my people hear you. And it's, it's not just me talking to myself about, you know, reading off this piece of paper saying, well, I read this study saying that this is what you need to do. You know, right. these are real life scenarios. You know, you had a partner commit suicide. I had a partner commit suicide. You've had a bad call. I've had a bad call. You know, multiple people going through different things, different types of bad calls. You know, maybe what I experienced as, as bad, you had a different one, but it was similar to somebody else's. You know, two, it could have been two pediatric cardiac arrests but mine was a drowning and yours was a um, non-accidental trauma. You know, they're both pediatric cardiac arrest, but that person had that same NAT and that's what they needed to hear was, yes, it bothered you. Yes, it, this is how I dealt with it. However, you know, just spreading that is is really important. And I I completely agree. It'll happen. It'll get there. And uh, like I say, unfortunately it won't be soon enough for some people, but I hope that those people hear these stories before it gets to the point where they can't turn back, you know? Absolutely. And to that point, I got to thank you and everybody who runs a not mental health focused podcast, right? I mean, obviously you have, you have some good, you know, pro mental health stuff in all your stuff, but for a guy who's running a full med and a full mental health podcast, right? You are a big part of the change. You know, you could have Dr. Hans heavy on here, right? Talking about, PD, all of his, the amazing PD work that he does, mm-hmm. right? You can have all these other people on here. And then for you to devote a couple hours of your time or a week of your time, because it took us so long to actually, you know, find ourselves in front of the microphone, uh, you and all your colleagues are, are a humongous part of that change. Uh, I'm going to have somewhere to talk at a mental health conference, right? Because I'm kind of in that space. Mm-hmm. But when you're going to medical conferences, when people are like, hey, I heard you talk somewhere, hop on this podcast to help expand that to the masses and somebody who agrees with you on everything, right? Well, was screaming, hell yeah, as you were talking about guns and, you know, yeah. knew everything you want to talk about on the PD side of the coin to say, oh shit, well, if Brian takes his mental health stuff seriously, like maybe I should look into it too. Because like you said, man, it's all about trust and it's all about identifying with the people we identify with. And uh, so thank you for taking, for allowing us the time to have this conversation because it's really important. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it, as far as w- once people get into you know, they might hear, you know, all they want to do is listen to the medical stuff, but they're just driving their car, they're cruising, they're hearing, they're just in the background and then this comes on and they hear one keyword, you know, and that flips them over and they actually start listening to the conversation. Maybe that's the difference between them, you know, going home and drinking a bottle of whiskey or going home and realizing, holy crap, look at my liquor cabinet. It's full of everything. And I have this huge party planned for this weekend and all we're going to do is drink you know, or I'm going to the CMS conference and all we're going to do is drink. You know, that was a big part of the conversation I had with Daniel was, you know, we go out and we, we, we drink down our, you know, drink down our sorrows, whether we think we are or not and ending stuff like that and making just people realize and be more cognizant of what they're doing to compensate for whatever else that maybe you want to go out and have a good time and drink that that's perfectly fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know what I mean? Is it healthy all the time? Not if you're doing it every day, but every now and then we're, we're all social drinkers, you know, and, uh, it, it just, just as long as you're doing it for the right reason, you're doing it because, you know, you're just standing around talking to people, 
but you're not doing it to drown your sorrows. You're not doing it, you know, and it, regardless of who you talk to, what podcast you listen to, you know, building that trust is important. Building that, getting the right people to talk about it, you know, not just Joe Schmo, who's got, they've been through it, but you know, they're now they're giving you advice, but they've got no real training. They've got nothing, you know, you got to be careful with that sort of stuff, you know, having, having gone through, you know, the ICISF training and stuff like that. It's it's important, but does that make you qualified to give advice? Not necessarily. You can share your story, but you can, you know what I mean? But when you've really done it and that's what you dedicate part of your life to, those are the people who need to be giving the advice and talking about like you, like Daniel, like Tanya Glenn, like all these people who really go out and, dedicate their lives to this. And, and that is amazing because, you know, I don't have the time to do it. I hate to say that, but it's, you know, to be able to do what you guys do and dedicate that much to the mental health side of things is so important. So thank you for all that, for being able to dedicate your life that much, you know, using your own experiences, having, having made it to the other side is, amazing and hearing people's stories who've made it to that side, I think are what really are going to start changing, changing, changing the stigma, changing the conversation. Um, because, you know, one call, you had one call, you went through one CIS debriefing. I'm sorry, but those aren't the stories that are really going to change people's lives. You know, when it got to the point of somebody, I was sitting on the edge of the bed with a gun in my mouth, I pulled the trigger and it didn't go off. That's tough love. That's, this is what happened. This is the shock factor, you know, and those stories, your stories, what you've done and what you're dedicated to doing is, is so important. Just as, just as important as medical education, mental education is the same thing, you know? And so, so thank you for that. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking about it. Thank you for sharing your story and continuing it, you know, tell, tell me a little bit more about stay fit for duty and, and what you do. I mean, you've got a Facebook page, you've got, um, Instagram, all the social media stuff. Tell me a little bit more about what exactly you do with that. Absolutely. Um, so Fit for Duty is, uh, like you said, has a Instagram, a Twitter, uh, and a Facebook and is working on a real life webpage um, in affiliation with the Uniform Services Peer Council. Uh, they were kind enough to give me a little space on, uh, on their uh, very, very well done website that I'm frantically trying to like make mine look semi-cohesive as well. Um, uh, the biggest things we do are, are create a space for people to reach out if they need help. Um, and whether that's specifically reaching out to me or reaching out to the resources that I affiliate myself with. Uh, again, I, I run uh, Boston Metalites peer support team. Um, I'm a member of the Rhode Island Critical Incident Team, um, and I'm a member of uh, Echo Fast. Um, so whether it's reaching out to me specifically or reaching out to the network, right, to, to reach out and get people, Daniel, Dennis, and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a huge platform to talk about it, right, and to, and to remind people every day that, hey, today sucked, right? I am not the Instagram influencer who's like, look at me and my six pack, right? I'm like, I'm sorry, I've been out for 10 days. And thank everybody who tagged me in a post to make my social media look alive. Mm -hmm. Well, I could not bring myself to answer a work email, let alone, you know, uh, post on social media. Um, So I think it's it's important to also show, you know, your real time successes and failures. um, And to give people who are just kind of browsing the interweb a space to say, hey, look, this isn't your average mental health advocate, right? We all talk about the bravado in civil service, right? Flight medic, paramedic, 
firefighter. Like these are these are big deal professions to a lot of people, but that one's talking about his feelings. Wow. All right. Well, I guess I'm gonna you know check this out, and right. um, that helps me network with mental health professionals, and that helps me network with you know people like yourself who are truly in the you know the the idea of open access medicine and open access mental health, and genuinely spreading the word. Uh, like I said, my goal is to not have a job in 10 years, right? right. To either hang a shingle, right, as a therapist and, and advertise myself that way, but to not have a job in the sense of knowing that I can speak at a couple conferences because mental health needs to be talked about. My my goal is in 10 years for that to be old news. So that's, a, that's kind of a weird model to run a social media platform on. But there really is one of my goals is to talk about it and to advocate for it and to make sure that everyone knows that we want this to be painfully mainstream. Mm-hmm. So it's not news anymore. It's no different than scene safety. It's no different than entitled. It's no different than any of the cornerstones of our medical practice. Right. I love it. I, I really do. I love the fact that, you know, you can take a- anything you post, anything you do, you know, it, it resonates with so many different people. You know, it's not just about, you know, EMS. It's not just about fires. It's not just about police or critical care. You know, you might have a focus on something, and and most most people do, you know, just based off your your background. Exactly. But, but you know, I can't necessarily go to a cop and talk about being shot at because I'm not I'm not necessarily gonna be the right person for that. But just being there, hey, look, I saw your site. Can I get? Do you know anybody who I could talk to about this? Maybe it's you. Maybe it's somebody else. You know, and, and sharing these things and putting them out there, whether it's yours, whether it's sharing somebody else's, whatever it may be, is just you know, let's turn into that spam mail. Let, let's, you know, that's all you're going to see. All you're going to see is people talking about this, you know, for 10 years, then it's going to get better, you know, but never stop talking about it. Never stop, you know, realizing it's a problem because that's when it's going to come back. You know, think about all these things we do, we do, it, we do, we do it. And then AHA says, well, stop doing this. And now right. we're bringing Bertillion back. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, no, <laughs> no, let, let's not play that game. Let, let's keep it going. You know, maybe we tone it down a little bit. Maybe it's only three milligrams, you know, so it's just, it is so important and I can't thank you enough for what you do. Um, I wish that five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, when I was going through everything I was going through that there was more resources like this and it didn't take, you know, essentially my life falling apart to realize that I needed the help I needed that, you know, I knew of these resources. I knew they were out there. Um, and I'm hoping that that's what we can do. We can keep people from getting to that point save those relationships, save those lives, save those careers. And maybe we will get those people back. You know, those 20, 30 year medics, you know, there's not a whole lot of them left and we need those, you know, there's a huge gap and so many people are leaving because of this. And and I'm really hoping that that's what we can do. I'm hoping that we can solve some problems. We can save some lives and just change the world. Absolutely, man. I'm happy to do it alongside you. Perfect. I love it. So is there anything else you want to talk about when it comes to the mental health, the um, just resources you offer or anything, any other advice or tips? Yeah. Um, what I, what I will say is um, head to any of my social media uh, that Brian will have in his show notes. Um, I stay underscore fit the number four duty. Sorry. There were a lot of stay fit for duties that were taken. <laughs> so I had, to, I had to manipulate mine a little bit. Um, I, I had a whole pile of resources for me there. Um, and check us out. Uh, like, like um, Brian and I were talking about, there are more resources available than people know of. 
come come to us. Like you said, I'm not going to be the guy that can answer everyone's problem. Right? I'm just not the right person for that. But I will help you find either the person with the network or the person themselves. Um, and the very last thing I'll say is please, please remember that it's okay to not be okay. Perfect. I love it. And I saw you too. You are, this, we'll put this up in November. Um, you're supporting the, for the uh, mustache November or the no shave oh, November. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, thank talk you so about, much. Yeah. Talk about that yeah. a little bit. We'll see what we can so, get. So, uh, I, I know you guys won't be able to see the video, but um, I, I am I am clean shaven. Well, I'm three days growth, so I look like a 18 year old now. Um, I am part of Boston Med Lights Movember team. Uh, one of the things I like about Movember is not only they promote men's. Uh, originally, they were men's testicular wellness, right? Uh, testicular cancer awareness. Uh, they've expanded to men's medical health, right? Just men's health in general. Um, and very recently, they've adopted a men's mental health and wellness. Um, and while I utterly despise asking people for money because uh, it makes me nauseous. Um, That's the, what you're doing, not me. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the Blue Suits is Boston Med Flights Movember page. I have a hyperlink to that in my Twitter and my Instagram, and we'll have one up on Facebook. Um, we're also, uh, we've taken the Fit for Duty logo and we've added like a Movember twist to it. Uh, we should have some stickers and some decals there. Um, and if anyone's interested in buying a sticker uh, in place of donating, uh, every penny I get from the Movember sticker sales goes to the Blue Suits, uh, which is the Med Flight team that I'm supporting. Do you guys raise money year-round? Is there a way for people to donate all the time, or is it just for November? Uh, right now, it's just for November, um, but I can I can diligently work to figure out how we can keep that open year-round and go from there. Okay. I'll definitely put all that in the show notes, too. Links to your page, awesome. Thank uh, you so a much. bunch of resources. Uh, on our website, we have the I Need Help link. Um, yep. where we put all of our resources, so we'll put all of that it. in there, um, as well as the uh, blue suits for get some donations and see if some people can get some cool mustache stickers. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, by the way, it's really cool. Awesome. Thank you. So we'll, we'll get that up there and uh, you know, every, not just mental health, but all health is great, you know? Um, so whatever we can do to help support each other and get it going. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Thank you guys for your time. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I'll put a list of resources from James in the show notes and on our, I need help page on our website. I will add links to his social media pages as well as the Blue Suits No Shave November campaign to the show notes as well. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard on this or any other podcast, feel free to leave them on our blog, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also email us. As always, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe. You can listen to us on any of your favorite podcast services. Also, please leave a review. It's important so we can tailor our content to our listeners. Thanks again for listening, and as always, stay safe. Stay grounded and never forget, everybody goes home.